Missouri State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick has been in his post for more than one and a half years, and now he's making the case to voters this November about why he should stay in office. The GOP statewide official joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about his campaign and how his office is involved in COVID-19 spending. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via Zoom is St. Louis Public Radio's State House reporter, Jacqueline Driscoll. And our special guest today is Scott Fitzpatrick, state treasurer. Thank you so much. This is part of our unofficial series talking with the statewide aspirants for Missouri office. Uh, Really appreciate your time. I believe this is your fourth time on Politically Speaking. It's really not a special designation. Lots of people have been on four times, but I guess you get the four-time club hat or something. I would say nobody has been on four times in four different locations. Once by phone, once from the Capitol, once in your studio, and once in a remote location. Yes. Yeah. You See, you're, you're finding a good way to stand out. There you so, go. So you're running for your first full four-year term. You were appointed to this post after Treasurer Eric Schmidt became Attorney General. Start off with a, a pretty straightforward question. Why do you want to continue this job for the next four years? Well, I, I really enjoy public service, and you know, I, I didn't grow up as somebody who thought I was going to be in politics. I uh, was more focused on business and trying to build a business and, and make money, and then by virtue of my encounters with government as a small business owner when I was uh, in my even younger years, it got me interested in, in serving in, in political office, and so I started out in the House, ended up in the Treasurer's office. And, you know, I really feel like I've just uh, been able to make a difference, and I think I can continue to make a difference uh, for taxpayers and for the citizens of the state. And there are still things that I'd like to accomplish uh, as the treasurer. I've been the treasurer for a little under two years, and I think a full term to, to work in that capacity would give me an opportunity to get, get some more of those goals uh, accomplished. This was a very unique year uh, for myself with you know, the pandemic and trying to get my feet underneath of me. So I regrettably have not had a lot of time to speak with you, Treasurer, but what are some specific accomplishments that you've made during your couple year term so far? Well, I'll start with the most recent one that we uh, are really proud of. We, uh, We run the 529 education savings plan for the state. We call it most 529. Uh, it's been recently expanded to uh, allow people to save and spend money in K-12 for K-12 tuition, which in light of uh, a lot of the public school remote learning situations that's, that are happening, some folks are opting for private school. So we've been working to try to w- raise awareness about that. But we just renegotiated our contract with our program manager on that, uh, and uh, we're able to secure a pretty substantial reduction in the fees that were being charged. It's going to result in 
over $8 million in savings for plan participants uh, over the next five years uh, during the life of that contract. And that's something that we've really been working on, frankly, since I took office to, to work to get those fees down. Uh, and we were able to announce that uh, a few weeks ago. And to me, that's a big deal because it's going to make our plan a lot more competitive uh, with those uh, across the, uh, the country. We've also launched, uh, uh, expanded on the state government uh, checkbook that we had. Uh, we've launched that and ex expanded that to local governments. So now we're working uh, to get all the counties in the state to provide us their expenditure data that we'll put in a searchable format on our website, on our, uh, our Missouri checkbook webpage on the treasurer's office. We already have several counties uh, whose spending data is, is already published and available for citizens across the state to look at. And it's a project that we're going to continue to work on uh, in terms of providing, uh, providing folks access to records and, and expenditure data for local governments. Because I think one thing that's big to me is transparency in government. And I think we've shown that, you know, from our office, we respond to sunshine requests very quickly. Uh, we were sunshined by Democrats in the House last week and responded to it within two days. So, I mean, we, we take uh, transparency and the obligation of that very seriously in that local government. Checkbook effort is another part of that. Obviously, we'll talk a little bit more about the CARES Act uh, work that we've done. But, you know, I think another thing that's benefited me in the role is my experience running the state budget for, for the House and my understanding of, you know, the state's financial situation prior to becoming treasurer and how that's helped me, you know, uh, in terms of managing cash flow for the state, helping uh, across departmental lines in terms of, you know, we when the tax due date was moved from July 15th to, or sorry, April 15th to July 15th, uh, it caused a pretty substantial cash flow problem for the state in the short term that was going to make it very difficult to pay people refunds that they were owed because we didn't we were deferring a billion dollars of revenue for three months so i worked with the legislature to come up with a plan to use basically to get an appropriation passed to use the cares act funds for a short-term cash flow loan to the general revenue funds so that we were able to continue paying out refunds that resulted in missourians getting 250 million dollars for the refunds three months earlier than they otherwise would have and it also saved the state from paying nine percent interest uh, on the balances of those refunds while they wouldn't while you know the treasury wouldn't have been able to pay it. And so that's something that took you know effort between myself, the legislature, the governor's office, the office of budget and planning and it's something that I led the charge on and got done that that put money back in people's pockets quicker. Uh, and you know I'm working on similar things to that. I'll make one other point because there's a long list here but I'll I'll make one other one that we're really proud of. We worked with the Department of Social Services uh, on an issue relating to child support. So we have the unclaimed property program, which we've broken several records on uh, during my tenure, one being the most money returned in a fiscal year, which was $45 million in our first year. This last year, we paid out over 209,000 accounts, which is a record in terms of number of accounts that have been paid out. But one thing that we did is partnered with the Department of Social Services on our unclaimed property program. And we went and created an automated system to cross-reference the list of people who are past due on their child support against uh, the list of unclaimed property uh, owners in our database. And wherever there was a match, we're now doing this on a monthly basis, we're paying out uh, a payment to the families who are owed that past due child support if the owing parent has unclaimed property in our office. The first 
payment that we made when we got that launched generated over $2 million in payments to families across the state. One family received over $20,000 in past due child support. And that number has continued to grow. I think we're around $3 million now that's been paid out, and it'll continue to grow after that. So those are just, that's, you know, a list, a partial list of some of the things that we've worked on and accomplished in the first, you know, year and a half. I also saw today that your office that found, that returned like $30,000 worth of baseball cards to someone. Yeah, I actually did that this morning uh, before I before I came with you guys. I met uh, met up with a constituent out in St. Charles uh, at, at the park out there, and I think it'll be on the news uh, at some point uh, in the next day or two. Uh, but we have a lot of people don't understand that we you know we get unclaimed property and they think about money. Uh, for the vast majority of that, and that's correct, it usually is. But we also get safe deposit boxes turned over to us. We get about a thousand of those every year, and so one of the more interesting parts of the job is finding out what's in those safe deposit boxes. And in this case, uh, you know, this gentleman had about thirty thousand dollars, and I'd say that's a conservative estimate after having looked at what he had in there. Thirty thousand dollars worth of, of basically baseball cards, basketball cards, golf. He had a Tiger Woods rookie card. And so we returned those to him today. I came out and met him in person, gave him the gave him the cards back, and uh, had we had a, a little story done on it that'll hopefully help raise awareness for for folks. Did he have a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card? I know that that was pretty valuable when I was six or seven. So he mentioned like uh, he mentioned the Ken Griffey Jr. card being the card that you wanted to have in you know nineteen ninety five or whatever. I don't know if he had. There were a lot of cards in the stack, and he was showing us he had you know, Mickey Mantles and he had Joe Montana's rookie card and he had all these different things. He didn't pull out a Ken Griffey card from the stack, but again, he was seeing this stuff for the first time in like 20 years. So uh, it was actually pretty incredible. Like the, the detail he was going into about these cards. He knew, he knew his stuff. Well, we could talk about this or Beanie Babies or whatever else you find. But Jacqueline, I know you want to talk with the treasurer about the COVID-19 response that he's a part of. So we're going to transition into that. This task force is to dole out how the CARES Act funding goes to the state, if I'm correct. Could you just explain how that committee works and and why is it important? Why was it necessary for the state to create this? So the governor asked me to to participate by leading this working group uh, regarding the use of the coronavirus relief funds that were passed to the states through the CARES Act. And Missouri got a little over $2 billion uh, sent to us from the federal government to basically address the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and, and deal with costs directly related to that. And there are some things that are just going to, you know, that are just being, they're clear COVID expenditures that we've had and we had before we got the money that have been, you know, that money has been reallocated to, to you know, reimburse some of those expenses. But in terms of, I think the goal of the working group has been, you know, how can we use some of that funding to, you know, best uh, support, you know, uh, folks or, or groups, entities that are going to be number one impacted by state budget shortfalls that are, uh, you know, that are we're in the process of dealing with, uh, but also support those who have really been impacted by uh, COVID nineteen, and and so the working group we've had several meetings. We haven't had one for uh, for probably a month and a half because with all the conjecture around what Congress is going to do in terms of you know additional funding or. Uh, or loosening up the guidelines on this funding. The last thing we want to do is is spend the money in a way that we regret having spent it. You know, if, if something were to change around the guidance, and so you know, I think it it was important because it brought folks in from the executive branch, but it also brought in elected elected officials, 
uh, both current and former elected officials, state legislators. Uh, you know, we have uh, two state senators and two state representatives, and those are uh, individuals that uh, you know are very you know they're very close in terms of the the constituencies they represent. And they are you know it's provided a, a good sounding board and a lot of good feedback that allows folks from varying backgrounds to provide information and, and, and provide feedback about how they think the money should be used. So the, the working group has done quite a bit and we've, we've made several recommendations and I think all the recommendations that we've finalized have, have been adopted, uh, but we're currently kind of waiting uh, for a little bit longer to see if Congress does anything before making any additional moves uh, around, you know, what we would recommend uh, be that money be used for. Um, I know that I think it was back, it was in the summer, I don't remember if it was June or July that your office held a, a call with some county officials about um, just how the money could be spent, like offering clarity on ways that it could be used. Do you feel as though like county leaders have a good understanding of how they can use these funds? I think their understanding has improved significantly, and that's been a journey that states and the counties have been on together. And just for a little color there and background, the legislature appropriated in the supplemental appropriations bill that directed how some of this CARES Act money was to be used. They directed that 25% of the money that we received should be distributed to local governments and then kind of use the counties as the vehicle for that. Uh, and I think the reasoning behind that is essentially that you know, counties don't overlap boundaries. And obviously, when you throw the city of St. Louis in there, you can basically, you know, have, you have a map that, that doesn't overlap boundaries that you can distribute money based on population, uh, which some people disagreed with that, that, you know, some people thought we should do it based on COVID cases. But obviously, you know, you know you're seeing rural parts of the state getting, you know, more cases. And, and so if we distributed based on COVID cases at that point in time, it would have probably, uh, you know, been not, not representative of what, what has happened now. But uh, so we distribute it based on population. When we first got the guidance, you know, we got $2 billion and we got two and a half pages worth of guidance on how we were supposed to spend it. And I think that that was a, a thing that the state was going through and that the counties were going through and that local governments and state governments across the country were going through of trying to get answers to questions and things clarified. And we heard from counties that they were obviously concerned because if, if they use the money in a way that's deemed to be not allowable, then they're responsible for repaying that to the state who will ultimately be repaying it to the federal government. So we endeavored to basically provide an opportunity to, for the counties to ask questions and us to try to get answers to those questions. And what we did was we hosted a call with the counties. I think we had almost 200 people on that call. And then we had a, a gentleman who's the counselor to the secret, uh, secretary of the treasury in Washington, D.C., join us for that call. And I basically asked him the questions that the counties were asking me and, you know, tried to you know drill him down to get answers on those questions, asking follow-up questions if there were moments when he was trying to maybe dance around the question a little bit to provide ex you know specific examples. And we recorded that call. We posted it on our website, and county officials have – the feedback I've gotten from county officials as I've been around the state a little bit has been that it's been very – it was very helpful to them. Uh, and then we also had a, another call uh, with the counties a couple weeks ago to uh, try to work on, on helping get the, some of this funding – some more of this funding, I guess I should say, distributed down to the local public health agencies, because that's been a, an issue that some people have had concerns with. So, uh, and I can talk about that too, if you want to, but we, we're still working on that. Yeah, that was going to be actually my next question was, you know, we're still hearing that a lot of county health departments don't have the funding. Um, 
how how do we make sure that this funding gets to where it needs to be to its intended purpose? So I think uh, a couple of things. One, you know, I think that we thought we felt like, or the legislature felt like, and I tend to agree with them that counties, you know, the county commissions are, were in a really good position to be able to know the needs of their, uh, you know, their areas. Uh, and respond probably more quickly than state government was in terms of getting money distributed to other local entities. I think in a world where you had really good guidance and all that was all the information was f- freely flowing at the beginning, that you would have seen probably a, a, you know that happen on a more broad basis. But the concerns we've heard on a kind of repetitive basis from counties is that look, we want to make sure that that you know. We most of them want to reimburse the expenses, and because they want to make sure the expenses occur, so that they're not on the hook for repaying it. And obviously, then the health department on the other side is concerned about you know making the expenditures if they don't have the assurances that they're going to be reimbursed. So what we did is we worked with the counties and the office of administration to basically, and we you know my office basically developed a memorandum of understanding that was distributed to all the counties and basically said, listen, if you if your county health department wants or needs this funding and is requesting this funding, if you as a county choose to give it to them, we will basically hold the county harmless for the way the health department uses the money up to 15% of the total amount that we gave to the county. So we're basically telling counties, if you, you can give the health department what they're asking for up to 15% of your total allotment, um, and we will uh, hold that we will ha- basically hold the health department directly responsible to the state for the use of that money as opposed to ha- holding the county directly responsible. And so what that did was it shifted the burden uh, of, in terms of proving how the money was spent and that it was spent uh, and allow- for allowable purposes to the health department. The state is then relieving the county of their obligation, and the county is agreeing to transfer that money to the uh, uh, to the, the health department. So I just actually right before this uh, – this interview, I just signed uh, another one of those MOUs, basically to for and that one was for Jefferson County. I think last week I signed Warren County, so we've started to see some of those come in the mail, and that some of those counties are taking advantage of that to transfer money to their health department. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick, and we're back on politically speaking with State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick. So I want to move on to a topic that you know that. I know and love, and that a lot of people interested in Missouri politics uh, really, really like, are really, really hate, and that's low-income housing tax credits. So we talked about this a lot on the last show, and we're not mm. going to spend a huge amount of time talking about it, because if, if people want to know like your general opinions about the program, they can listen to the last show. Sure. But the reason yeah. I'm asking you about this topic now is by the time that this airs, I think the state program is going to be turned back on. MHDC, the Missouri Housing Development Commission, is set to meet, I think, in late September to finalize a draft plan. You had had some, a lot of concerns about the efficiency of this program. I'm sure that you, you faced a lot of heat, even from your own party, on going out on a limb for this. How, what's your general thoughts about how this nearly three-year-long saga basically came to an end? Well, I think obviously I was disappointed uh, two years ago in the legislature uh, on the last day of session that, that the bill that was on the you know in the Senate was not taken up and given a vote. And I think it would have passed had it been voted on. But uh, you know, then following that, everybody kind of understood where where everybody stood in the legislature. There was a bill filed uh, this past session, uh, but obviously uh, 
you know, with everything that happened, it didn't really get much traction. Right. So. And for our listeners, Governor Parson had said in 2018 he wasn't going to turn the program on without legislative action. But to be fair to him, he never made that same promise after 2019 going to 2020. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that, like, you know, he you, people can criticize him for changing his mind, but, like, we got to be kind of super specific about like what he said on this issue but continue i i agree with that yeah he, he that was a a couple of years ago and then obviously you know uh, i i think everybody thought we had a chance to get something done and what we were really trying to address was when we talk about the efficiency of the program it's basically the way i look at this is for every dollar of tax credit the state issues we're giving up a dollar worth of tax revenue and then you have to look at that what are we getting in return and the way that the program has been structured in the past is that, uh, you know, a developer that gets a tax credit sells that credit or, you know, for lack of a better term. And in the past, the, the numbers in terms of what they got for that credit, since it's a 10 year credit, it's only redeem, you know, have to redeem it uh, in, you know, 10% per year over 10 years, they would get, you know, at the low point, it was like in the 42 cent per dollar of tax credit issued. So the way I would look at that is the state, it's the equivalent of the state going out and borrowing $42 million uh, for housing and paying it back over 10 years and with interest, it came out to $100 million if you, if you wanted to use the, yeah. the analogy. So w- the goal is to get that number up. You know, you make it as efficient as possible. I'm not here. I've never been trying to debate with anybody about the value of the program or the, the goals of the program. It's just about what is the return on the, for, the, for the taxpayer. And so we've worked to basically in this draft QAP do things to, that will improve that and try to get that number up, you know, instead of getting 40 cents on the dollar, maybe get 65 or 70 cents on the dollar. Yeah, I have not looked over the draft QAP in great detail, um, but does it include some of the things that were talked about in 2019? Like it's only a certain percentage of the federal allotment. Did some aspects of that bill make it into this plan? Yeah, so we're at 70% in the QAP of the federal credit. So that's a, you know, a reduction of you know, 47 or $8 million uh, in terms of what we're spending on it. We also created an accelerated redemption option, which will improve the pricing on the credit. I think it'll basically reduce the effective interest rate that the state is paying, you know, basically for these credits in terms of the loss for time value of money. Um, that's included in it. We also put a, you know, put a scoring rubric in place. The way it used to be done is nobody knew how MHDC selected the projects. So there was concerns about you know, where there's favors being done for people. So now there's a scoring process and all those scores are now going to be publicly available. Uh, and you can see how every application did on the score, you know, on the scoring. And also in part of that scoring, one thing I worked on and got in, uh, included was, was an efficiency metric in terms of how much money are we spending per bedroom uh, so that there's at least some component of, the, of this that's based on the price and the cost. Because there's some critics who would say that, uh, you know, Th- th- there was no basically cost component. Cost was no object for these projects in the past. So having some kind of component of that, and all those things are in this draft QAP, and, and that will be voted on again in uh, September on September twenty fifth. So I think one of the reasons you wanted to put this into statute is you can have all of these things for I guess one year or something. Sure, yeah. But it could just be undone the next year when momentum over this issue. Are, I understand that this issue does not get widespread attention of the public, but it certainly gets a lot of attention inside Jefferson City. Like, it's not out of the question. Like, the next QAP could just be like, you know, 100% of the federal program, none of the things you just mentioned. And it just goes back to the status quo. With that in mind, like, 
are you planning on voting for this? And do you have, even if you do vote on this, do you have fears that it's just going to revert back to where it was next year? Uh, so kind of where I am on the vote is that if the QAP includes all the things that the draft QAP includes, then I will vote for it. I pretty much have made that commitment because I wanted to get those those improvements in to the, to the QAP. And, and would I like to have seen more done legislatively? The answer to that is yes. Am I concerned about what the future holds? I think that... Um, you know, if, if I leave the commission, I think that uh, the, the, it would most there's certainly a high probability of things that have been put in being taken out. But, uh, you know, if, if I'm still on the commission, I'd like to think I'd be able to, to keep those things in, at least for the, that period of time. And then maybe as time moves on, if the legislature changes a little bit, then maybe we can get something in legislation. But is it concerning? Yes, I would prefer to have something in, in statute so that it can't be undone. But you know, I'm, I'm working with what I've got here. So. So the next question I want to ask is about Medicaid expansion. You were a surrogate against the ballot initiative that passed during the August primary. It, it passed by what, about six or seven percentage points, Jacqueline? Yes, she, she's nodding right now. Uh, why did you decide to get involved in this issue? Some people would say, like, why is the state treasurer involved in an issue that, it, that really concerns the legislative and, and gubernatorial uh, administration? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there's a few reasons I got involved. One is that it involves a tremendous expenditure of taxpayer money. And as the state treasurer, you know, I'm the custodian of state funds. And, you know, I think really anything that involves the finances of the state involves me uh, as what some would call the chief financial officer for the state. So I think that, you know, that, that there's certainly grounds to be involved on that issue, on that issue based on that alone. So I felt a responsibility as the state treasurer to at least make an effort to tell Missourians and taxpayers uh, what I believed to be the case regarding what it, the true cost of Medicaid expansion would be uh, and some of the, uh, I think, misinformation that was being spread at a, you know, I mean, a pretty substantial way with the amount of money that was spent on it uh, about what the true cost of this would be. And also just there's the policy aspect of it too because i felt like there just wasn't a high level of honesty being uh, dispersed on in, in terms of who was going to be the main beneficiaries of this change it's not uh you know it's not primarily going to be you know elderly people it's not primarily going to be people with disabilities it's not primarily going to be children because those are all groups who uh, groups of people who have medicaid eligibility uh, in many cases, a very generous Medicaid eligibility. If you're a pregnant woman in Missouri, before Medicaid expansion, you were already eligible for Medicaid up to 300% of the federal poverty level. Children were eligible up to 300% of the federal poverty level, which, by the way, for a family of four is $72,000 or something like that. So the main group of people that we were talking about expanding to were able-bodied, childless adults, um, people that you know didn't have children. They're able-bodied, so they're able to work. And the other thing is, for a single person, a single person making minimum wage, I think our minimum wage is going to be like 10, 15 or 10, 25 or something come January 1st. People making working a 40-hour job making minimum wage will make too much money to qualify for Medicaid even under expansion in Missouri. I mean, it's because our minimum wage is going up, you know what I mean? But and we're going to have a high minimum wage. But So we're re- what we really have asked people to do at this point is for those people who are working a minimum wage job 40 hours a week, we're asking them to now pay taxes to fund f- completely free taxpayer-funded health insurance that has no deductible, no copay, no coinsurance, uh, you know, no max out-of-pocket costs whatsoever. Uh, those people 
are the minimum wage 40-hour-a-week earners paying taxes to fund that for able-bodied adults who are not working at least a minimum wage job 40 hours a week. To me, that was a policy problem, and I felt like I should tell people about it. So the voters did end up approving Amendment 2 to expand Medicaid. So here we are, and the legislature is tasked with implementing the program um, in the 2021 uh, session. One of the things that I've heard from some Republicans is the possibility of imposing work requirements as a way to kind of offset the amount of people that can access Medicaid as it is expanded. Is that something that you would support if that, if that were to come up? Well, it's an interesting question because, I mean, in general, I support work requirements. I mean, I, when I say a work requirement, I mean somebody displaying a good faith effort of if they don't have a job, that they are seeking one if they're able to, ha- to work. You know what I mean? That, to me, is a reasonable bar to clear to be eligible for taxpayer-funded benefits. Um, you know, same thing with unemployment. You need to show that you're trying to get a job, you know, while you're collecting unemployment. And I think that would go for, you know, I think it makes sense for that to, to be the case. Uh, for Medicaid. And so the, the challenge is the way that the ballot initiative was written or the constitutional amendment was written is that you can't impose a requirement on the expanded population that isn't on every other population. And so placing a work requirement on, uh, you know, on people with disabilities who clearly can't work or placing a work requirement on elderly people who are in nursing homes who clearly can't work is not practical. So it's just going to be an interesting thing as, as to how that uh, plays out in terms of the constitutionality of it with the way that the ballot, the, the constitutional amendment was written. Wouldn't it require another ballot initiative, like to change the constitution to allow a work requirement in the first place? So you can, I think you can allow a work requirement, but you have to do it for everybody. I think the, I don't think the constitution says no work requirement. I think it just says you can't impose restrictions on this population that you don't impose on all. My understanding is you're, you're correct in what I've spoken to people about because some heartburn that people are having is obviously with people with disabilities, imposing work requirements on them. Obviously children are protected with, you know, laws, but um, like pregnant women, people imposing work requirements on pregnant women would also be something that some people had concerns about as well. But in, in terms of funding or, or costs associated with this program, obviously the federal government picking up a large part of the tab for the new expansion, we still have to pay for what, what we do have um, as a state. But there's also a lot of um, ideas that were floated in the legislature that obviously lawmakers didn't get to because of the coronavirus, talking things like the internet sales tax, um, what else, the possibility of uh, legalizing marijuana, I guess, if the legislature wanted to go that route. But there are ways, uh, the gambling expansion, there are ways to like raise revenue, I suppose, if the legislature were to take up those issues. So it's not necessarily through budget cuts. There could be ways to generate this funding, correct? Uh, Oh, sure. There are. I mean, yeah, I think that you potentially run into Hancock issues with some of those uh, with some of those proposals just by virtue of the fact that, you know, the legislature is limited on on, on what taxes they can raise in a, in a year. I think it's like 1% of the prior year's general revenue collections. So um, so I, I think there are limitations in terms of what we can do from a tax perspective. Uh, when I say we, I mean the legislature. Uh, but I, I, I think out of the things that you mentioned, I think the one that I could that I can make a very clear case for is 
is the the Wayfair or the internet sales tax. To me, it's a fairness, competitive fairness issue between uh, brick and mortar businesses that have physical presence in the state of Missouri versus online, you know, internet based companies that don't have a physical presence or employees in the state. And I think you have to you have to put those people on a level playing field. Um, and so, you know, and there's our, I, the other thing is I don't think that's going to raise as much money as a lot of people think it's going to. Most of the large sellers like Amazon is already remitting. Walmart already has stores and Target already has stores. So they already have Nexus. They're already remitting. These big sellers of you know, online retailers are already paying tax. So it's I think you're really talking about a smaller, a much smaller amount of money associated with that. Uh, and, you know, so the reason I'm supportive of that is more along the lines of a competitive fairness issue for small businesses across the state than it is about, you know, a money grab for this for, for the state the state government. In the last couple of minutes we have, I do want to talk about the campaign. This is your first sure. statewide election that you've run for. You're running against Democratic State Representative Vicki England, who we are going to have on the podcast in the coming days and weeks. Um, why do you think that you line up better politically? I think a lot of like what happens with down ballot races typically are, are at the mercy of the national environment or of the governor's race. Um, but this is a lot different than running for a state representative seat in Barry County. This is a statewide election. Like, why do you think that you're going to be able to come out on top of this? Well, I think you're right about, you know, the down ballot statewide uh, are largely impacted by what happens at the presidential and governor's race level and in Senate years, when, what happens in a Senate race. Uh, I think, I think in terms of you know why I think I should come out on top. I, you know, is maybe the, the the better the better way of putting it is is really my my experience. I think lends lends itself well to this job. And I think number one, I've done the job for almost two years now. But I think you know you take that away, and I still think my resume stacks up better uh, for for this job. I've I've built a small business with almost seventy employees. It's doing you know eight figures in revenue. So I I understand like that aspect of it. Uh, made a multi-million dollar payroll since I was a teenager. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I guess the payroll wasn't multi-million until I was in my early 20s, but the business was, it was a multi-million dollar business in terms of revenue before I was 20 years old. And so, you know, I have that experience. I also have the experience of writing the state budget, uh, a $30 billion budget. I was on the budget committee for six years in the legislature. I've demonstrated, I think, while I've been treasurer, in terms of just you know these these cash management things I've I've talked about you know the things that that previous treasurers probably wouldn't have done because they wouldn't have been you know forcing themselves into conversations about things like that um, you know I think that resulted in Missourians getting 250 million dollars in tax refunds they wouldn't have otherwise gotten for another three months and it would cost the state millions of dollars in interest too so. There are things I think specifically that I've pointed to and that I could continue to point to about why I am I'm a good fit for this job. Uh, and I like helping people. I mean, I've, I I still deal with constituents. I think if you talk to, you know, people that I've helped, uh, get, get things done with executive branch departments that have been a challenge, most of them would say, man, nobody would listen to me until I talk to you. You know, you actually helped me get this done and I can provide multiple examples of those types of people. Uh, and I'll continue to do that if I'm in the office, because I think that you need people who are willing to go to bat when, uh, when they're being wronged by the state government. And I, that happens regardless of who's in power. It's a 50,000-person organization. And while most state employees have good intentions, there are times when the law is misapplied. There are times when 
when uh, people are not treated fairly and you need to have people in office that are willing to go to bat for those people, and I'm one of them. Well, Mr. Treasurer, thank you very much for joining our show. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter? Driscoll NPR. And how can people find out more about your campaign or follow you on any other parts of the World Wide Web? You can go to scottfitzpatrick.com. That's my campaign website. Fitzpatrick Mo or at Fitzpatrick Mo is my Twitter. And then if you just search Scott Fitzpatrick on Facebook, I'm pretty easy to find. And uh, you can learn a lot about me in those, those areas. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. Uh-huh. <gasps>